I'm Susan Smitten, and you're listening to Raven Debriefs, a podcast where we dive deep into the legal challenges that Indigenous people are launching to protect their rights and the land, air, and water we all call home. Until the COVID-19 outbreak took over the global consciousness, Wet'suwet'en were gaining international attention as their peaceful resistance to a fracked gas pipeline erupted in violence at the beginning of this year with an RCMP raid on their camp. The focal point has been the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, a project proposed to cut through the traditional territory of the Wet'suwet'en, directly crossing, in fact, a healing centre and culture camp, which has been the locus of a 10-year process of cultural reclamation and education. In today's episode, I'm excited because you'll meet Kaylee DePuma. She's a lawyer with Woodward & Company who is working with Wet'suwet'en Nation. Wet'suwet'en clan members and their allies have repeatedly challenged CGL's legitimacy in court. In December 2019, CGL was granted a five-year extension to their pipeline permit. That decision triggered a police invasion of the culture camp and removal of land protectors from their territory to make way for pipeline construction. Now Wet'suwet'en are back in court to challenge the permit approval. with Woodward and Company. Uh, so I am, have the privilege of being uh, lead counsel on the Office of the Wet'suwet'en's uh, judicial review of the extension of CGL's uh, certificate to, um, to construct the, uh, the gas pipeline. I think it's important for people to understand what this judicial review does and, and doesn't do. Um, so when um, a government actor makes a decision uh, like this, the decision to um, extend uh, a certificate um, to uh, a project holder, um, they have to make that decision in a way uh, that is fair, and the decision itself needs to be reasonable. And if they fail on either one of those counts, a court will, um, will quash the decision uh, of, of the government actor um, and tell them to go back. What is, what is a reasonable decision? Uh, well, lots of people can disagree about what a reasonable uh, decision might be. If you and I had a discussion about something, I'm sure that we would disagree what was reasonable and unreasonable. We could find something uh, to disagree about. Um, but the point of uh, reasonableness um, review confused the courts actually in Canada for a long time. Um, and case law goes either which way, with courts being really deferential to government actors and some courts saying, I'm going to substitute my own decision making. And so it was a bit of a muddle. Um, and fortunately, in December, um, the Supreme Court of Canada issued a decision uh, called Vavilov that clarified the law of reasonableness and the onus on government actors to act uh, and make decisions um, that are reasonable. Okay, here's a quick primer on an important decision. Vavilov. The extent to which courts should show deference to governments and when it's appropriate to intervene to quash decisions has been a subject of considerable controversy in recent years. The Supreme Court recently made big strides towards resolving that debate in the Vavilov decision. Here's, in a nutshell, what it says. If decisions are not well-reasoned, 
or are found to be unjustified due to new evidence or unlawful practices being uncovered. The standard of reasonableness is not met and decisions can be quashed. What that means, in practical terms, is that courts have a framework through which to evaluate what reasonableness actually means, and clear guidance towards how to apply that standard in judicial reviews like the Wet'suwet'en case. And that is kind of the centerpiece of um, the legal strategy that we relied on. We rely heavily on that case um, in this judicial review. And we say uh, that the executive director of the Environmental Assessment Office made an unreasonable decision when he extended CGL's certificate for two reasons. First, um, because he failed to consider new and significant adverse impacts of the project. And the new and significant adverse impacts we point to are the findings of the Missing, Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. When it comes to the Missing, Murdered, and Indigenous Women and Girls recommendations, um, it's important for people to understand that uh, recommendations from inquiries like that aren't uh, law. They don't have legislative authority. Um, But uh, what they did in this particular inquiry um, was they made very specific findings of harms that are posed by man camps. And they explained how uh, the man camps and the influx of labor into remote communities can create um, significant harms, life and death harm. After a multi-year process of inquiry, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls report was released in 2019. The report finds resource development projects and the worker camps that make them possible pose a threat to Indigenous women. The report says that the boomtown and man camp environments created by industries are implicated in increased rates of drug and alcohol-related offenses, sexual offenses, and violence. According to the report, quote, This is largely the result of the migration into the camps of mostly non-Indigenous young men with high salaries and little to no stake in the host Indigenous community, end quote. A key call to action from the report is that all resource extraction and development industries consider the safety and security of Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, and asexual people at all stages of project planning, assessment, implementation, management, and monitoring. Um, So when uh, those recommendations were released, um, one of the recommendations was for um, government actors like the Environmental Assessment Office to assess those harms, to come up with a a, a gender-based socioeconomic assessment of the harms that could arise. And um, we say this was the one opportunity the Environmental Assessment Office had to assess those harms, and to impose additional conditions on CGL to mitigate those harms. And they failed to do that. They failed entirely. Um, What they said, uh, the bottom line, is that um, the mitigations that are already there, the conditions that are on CGL, um, are already good enough. 
And all of this new information from the inquiry, this very specific and compelling evidence of these harms, um, didn't, didn't inspire the EAO um, to either examine what the harms would look like on the ground for this project or to impose any additional measures on CGL to prevent them from happening. And it's a, it's a, a difficult issue in part because we don't think that the Environmental Assessment Office even understood the nature of the problem that they were being asked to consider. Um, and we say that because uh, CGL's response to the, um, to the inquiry's recommendations were, we already do a lot of things to ensure that these camps are secure. Um, we have a strict no drug and alcohol policy. We have posted security at the camp. The EAO accepted all of that and said, yeah, we think, we think this is enough. And, you know, what's really um, troubling about that is, is kind of the lack of understanding of the nature of the harm. One of the things that the inquiry found uh, with respect to man camps was that um, when you have a camp that has strict no drug and alcohol policies on camp, what do workers do when they need to blow off steam? They go into town. They go into town and bar attendance increases and there's more opportunities to interact with community members, from vulnerable community members, um, and that creates harm in, in those remote communities. That is, that is part of what creates the harm. And they missed that picture entirely, accepted CGL's plans that were created before the inquiry uh, was completed and before those recommendations, and they said, we think that's good enough. So we say that decision is unreasonable. We cannot find a path to reasonableness for that decision. The second way that we say that the decision was unreasonable is because CGL has a, um, an egregious uh, record of non-compliance and failure to comply with the conditions attached to their certificate. What we know based on the Environmental Assessment Office's own records is that there are 50 instances of non-compliance on the part of CGL in a 10-month time frame and that includes six of those months are the months in which this um, application for an extension was actively under consideration. What we know is that the uh, Environmental Assessment Office has a compliance and enforcement branch. They have people that go out into the field um, and inspect projects uh, for compliance with um, the conditions that are there to mitigate environmental harms. So these aren't... Um, these aren't Office of the Wet'suwet'en observations of non-compliance. These are the Environmental Assessment Office compliance and enforcement officers finding repeated egregious instances of non-compliance. I can give you some examples. 36 of the contraventions relate to CGL, um, CGL's decision to begin construction without meeting the pre-construction conditions um, that they needed to meet. So um, some of those conditions are things like having appropriate wildlife plans in place before you start um, construction. 
um, you know, they didn't do any of those things and they just kind of started doing it. And they, and that contravention, those contraventions persisted for two years. And the only reason that they were rectified was because Office of the Wet'suwet'en finally made a formal um, complaint to compliance and enforcement and said, we think these things are outside the terms of their, uh, their license. Um, and yes, in fact, they were. There is CGL's failure to perform site habitat assessment surveys for endangered plants and ecosystem. Um, repeated failures to notify uh, tenure holders in the area um, who may be impacted by construction, that construction is going to begin. Um, and then um, numerous infractions uh, related to failure to um, properly take care of their garbage and waste in um, the context of a sensitive wildlife area. And that may seem like a, like a minor issue, um, but when a, a company like CGL, who has all of these complex requirements that are there in order to mitigate environmental harms, can't even take care of putting away its own garbage properly, that is a concern. So that's kind of um, the pattern of non-compliance. We say it is significant. And we say that the Environmental Assessment Office needed to explain itself, needed to explain how and why it was granting a further extension to CGL in the face of that record of non-compliance. Um, you know, in their response to our judicial review, the position that is taken by the province is that, that the only party it owed any duty of fairness to in its submission, is CGL. That cannot be so. Um, in our view, this Environmental Assessment Office is there to assess projects and mitigate environmental harms and ensure compliance with those mitigation conditions. They are doing this in the service of, of the public so that there can be public confidence in the environmental assessment process. For that office to take the position that it is not it does not owe a duty of fairness to anybody in this in this process, other than CGL. is is um, It's incredibly disappointing, and we don't think that it is all consistent with the law. It's unclear when this is going to be heard, uh, and um, you know the current situation with COVID nineteen has certainly um, disrupted our plans in terms of when we would like to get this before a court. We know that in the meantime, CGL is continuing to um, to work. And, um, you know, in our view, uh, given the questions we've raised about the extension of this certificate and given um, the very real threat of, of COVID-19, uh, I would think that a, a responsible corporate actor would not be out uh, on the land working still. Um, but this is the decision that CGL has apparently made to date. Despite condemnation from many quarters, CGL has insisted on proceeding with work that involves not only close daily physical contact of workers, but dorm-style shared accommodation, cafeteria mealtimes, and, perhaps most dangerously, the concentration of non-local populations in remote areas with under-resourced hospitals and health systems. It just seems shocking to me that they're still, that they're still operating. I, I am... Uh... I'm very surprised I've got other 
uh, clients with um, large-scale projects um, like you know similar to this and they're all downing tools um, so uh, you know because they're they're making a responsible choice um, yeah it's very disappointing a company willing to ignore the recommendations of virtually every health official, not just in the country but in the world, does not have the best interests at heart of either its workers or of local populations where they operate. Given this recklessness in the face of COVID-19, hearing about these ongoing permit violations comes as no surprise. What is truly shocking and worthy of all our attention is that provincial and federal regulatory bodies seem unwilling to step in and put limits on a company that fails again and again to care for the people in whose territories they're operating. So um, what we've asked for uh, as relief uh, in this judicial review is for the decision to extend CGL's certificate to be quashed, uh, for the decision to be sent back to um, the Environmental Assessment Office to do properly, uh, with the guidance of the court's reasons about what they ought to consider and how they ought to do it and who they owe a duty of fairness to. Um, if we are successful in having that decision quashed, it will mean that CGL um, will no longer have a certificate for the period of time uh, that it will take for the EAO to reconsider its decision, which will mean that it will not be entitled to construct during that, that time frame. In terms of the broader kind of um, goals of this judicial review, um, beyond this particular project, I think it is an example of how um, the province's environmental assessment process uh, has significant flaws. This uh, legislation that this judicial review is under was the Environmental Assessment Act. The province has since replaced that legislation entirely with a new law that has yet to, um, to really, you know, work out. We not, we're not sure how it's going to function. Hopefully it will be an improvement um, under this uh, than this is. But uh, really the Environmental Assessment Office continues. And, um, you know, it's my personal hope that um, one of the outcomes of this judicial review is that the EAO will, um, will take its obligation to the public and public confidence in, uh, in its work uh, much more seriously uh, than it seems to have demonstrated in, in this case. The Wet'suwet'en Judicial Review is just one example of how nations are leading the way in holding governments and industry accountable. They are the eyes and ears of the land, upholding stewardship responsibilities that have been carried from generation to generation for thousands of years. Raven, the organization I work with, is currently fundraising to support the Wet'suwet'en Judicial Review acting on the knowledge that it's not fair that Indigenous people should have to go it alone when defending principles that benefit all of us, Raven is building a growing movement of ordinary people, businesses, and community groups who are committed to providing access to justice for Indigenous peoples. By donating, organizing events, and fundraising online, the Raven community has raised millions of dollars to support Indigenous legal challenges that have quashed pipelines, pushed back against open pit mining and defended nations to protect hundreds of thousands of hectares of territory from unsustainable industrial expansion. 
We're in it for the long haul, and we can't do it without you. Please visit raventrust.com and find out how you can stand with Indigenous peoples and be part of a circle of allies. This episode of Raven Debriefs is produced by Andrea Palfreman, edited by Rutendo Chabiqua, and hosted by me, Susan Smitten. Today you heard Kaylee DiPuma of Woodward & Company with music by Joshua Van Tassel and Miss Panic Danik. Subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and get to know more about Raven's groundbreaking work for Indigenous rights at raventrust.com. Thanks for listening and take care of each other. Listen to your inner voice, connect to the flow I said, yeah.